Blog Talk Radio. been told it's probably Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds and I plum forgot or something like that. Who knows? Anywho, this is Long Road to Ruin. I am your mandated reporter and frankly I'm modified host, Mr. Mark Rattledge. This is the uh, fourth part of a four-part series on the Harry Potter movies. The last two in the series, uh, The Deathly Hollows, part one and part two. So we are uh, shutting it down tonight uh, with all things Harry Potter and magical and mystical. No, uh, no lists or anything. No, uh, no we're going to get right into these movies. There's a lot to talk about. Uh, we should be joined at some point by our special guest and Harry Potter enthusiast, Alexis Haina. Uh, but while we wait for her, let me bring on my co-host, Mr. Sean Comer. How do you do, sir? Hi, everybody. I'm Sean. You're not. And welcome to what is a very kind of special occasion for you and I. Uh, Do we want to save that for the end of the show, or do we want to go ahead and just uh, put that out there now while we're waiting for Alexis? Um, I think because we're waiting for Alexis, let's just go ahead and stall. I mean, uh, talk about it now. (laughs) Um, let uh, let Let me go first. Yeah. Let me go first here and just put something out there. I talked a little bit about this on uh, Damn You Hollywood and uh, the Metal Hammer of Doom, though apparently my mic kept cutting out on me last night, so who knows what anyone heard. Um, so this is probably going to be the last year for Long Road to Ruin, um, and 
Uh, if, you, if you did not hear the announcement on JMU Hollywood, we are not doing a show as, we, as I had planned for the first two months of... Um, there's some personal stuff going on with me, not having another baby. There's no exodus happening, but <laughs> there, there's still be Metal Hammer of Doom every week, just about. But uh, I just... Um, so there were certain there were certain uh, elements of doing both Damn You Hollywood and Long Road to Ruin that have become untenable. Um, so that's all I'm, I'm going to say about that. Uh, Damn You Hollywood is is still going to come back in March. Uh, we've got we we're going to do three shows in March. We'll do one show in April, and then from May through the end of July, we'll be pretty much going weekly. Um, and then we'll go back to a limited schedule again because I still want to keep uh, the summer blockbuster theme at the very least. You know, we'll see what happens. But uh, for the but for the next two months, like I gotta keep it keep it cool. Um, so having said that, you know, Winfrey still has another show to do. So he's got the MMA show. So there'll still be plenty of Winfrey available for you Winfrey fans out there on Sundays talking the old MMA. So what of Sean and I? Uh, we have decided that we would still like to continue podcasting, uh, but maybe a retire long road to ruin permanently um, after the, the ver- after the December show, which is the Cornetto trilogy. That's going to be the last one. And starting in January, we're going to do something brand new and exciting. Still going to, it's still going to be revolving around movies, but um it's not going to be franchises as such. We'll be, I'm going to talk a little bit about it, and then I'm going to let Sean fill in the blanks. Um, it's, we're going to be talking about one film per show. We're going to try to do every other week like we used to do with Long Road to Ruin. And um, it's a different concept. Um, still in the film review milieu, but a little bit different. Something that, that I was telling Sean that I had been toying with uh, earlier in the year and just never got the time uh, to really get it going. So I'll let Sean sort of tag in here uh, and talk about our new show, which will be called On Trial. Sean? You know, this really isn't all that unlike a few shows that you've done already. You've heard Mark pipe up every so often with a special guest here and there doing an in defense of special. Uh, when we very first started doing this show, in fact, I sort of, I guess you could say moderated uh, debate with, I, I forget who you were debating against. Um, and I think... My, my, oh. oh, yeah, yeah. I want to say the debate I believe was um, uh, Re- uh, Revenge of the Sith versus Return of the Jedi. I may be remembering that incorrectly. Correct. Oh, I did get it right. Oh, okay. Oh, good. No, you're right. Okay. Um, and after that, he did several more. He did an In Defense of the Big Bang Theory with his wonderful wife, Melissa. Uh, he did an In Defense of Superman Returns. And we decided to take that. Man of Steel. And sort of tw- uh, Man of Steel, right. Sorry. Um and we decided to take that idea and tweak it and polish it a little bit. 
So this is actually going to be a more organized format for the two of us. The way it's going to work is we're going to pick a movie. It could be any movie. It could be an all-time classic. It could be a cult favorite. It could be an utter infamous B-movie turkey. You never know. And, by the way, at the end of explaining this, I will, in fact, reveal what our first movie is. But... Oh, boy, the echo's back. Goody. Um, and... I feel like the luckiest man. Oh, fuck you, Echo. Cut it out just to make a joke. <laughs> that is... God damn you, blog talk. Anyway, um, what we're going to do is we're going to pick a movie, and we're going to do this old school, high school, national forensics league style. We don't get to pick aside necessarily. It's going to be entirely up to chance. We're going to flip a coin to decide who's going to be arguing this movie is excellent versus this movie is shit. We don't know from one movie to the next who's going to be arguing which side. The only thing, though, is we're going to switch off who picks the movie each time out. And I've already got several of them in mind, as does Mark. However... We're going to start with one of my all-time favorite cult classic movies. It is one of John Carpenter's finest works, and it is arguably one of Kurt Russell's very finest hours of his time. As if there's any doubting it, I am talking about... Ah, not Escape from New York. No, we are going to be talking about Big Trouble in Little China. And we're just going to go back and forth in a civil, friendly manner. Um, no, we're not getting ranty, acerbic, trash-talking Sean back. Probably never again. Um, although, I don't know. I am jumping in on the Saw review next October. So, I shouldn't promise what I can't deliver. But, as the case may be, that's what it's going to be. Um, from one week to the next, we're going to know what the next movie is. But at the end of each show, we're going to do an on-air coin toss. That's going to decide which of us is going to have about two weeks to build our case either for or against this movie. And along the way, there's another show idea that Mark and I had, one that he suggested we should just kind of throw out there intermittently, and I'm going to toss it back to him to explain this one. It's an idea we've had in mind for a little bit. Okay, well, uh, part of what's informing... uh, the kinds of things we're going to be reviewing in 2017 revolves around what is streamable on services I currently pay for. Uh, I currently pay for Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon Prime. Uh, so basically anything that I'm getting as part of that service for free is fair game. Um, after no, it's going to cost somebody to rent it. I, eh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Really, it really, I, I shouldn't have to depend too much unless I get very, you know, synergistic again. Oh, we might, Blade Runner's out. We have to do Blade Runner, you know, whatever. 
Um, I'm trying to not do that this year. That's what got me in trouble. Um, you know, like I'm, like I'm a brand marketer or something. I'm a goddamn social worker. I should try to remember that. Um, hey, case, don't I'm mock brand marketers. So, uh, hey, don't mock brand marketers. <laughs> um, I was not mocking them. I'm just not one of them. I like to think that I am. <laughs> in any case, uh, we started doing the Sean and I started doing the Netflix show Orange is the New Black. Um, we started it in parts, and then it, that became untenable. And so we said, let's try to just sum it all up in uh, in two hours. And then Winfrey and I started in with the Netflix Marvel shows, Daredevil. Uh, that also started out in parts, but set, see, but, but but shortly after that, I said, no more doing these in parts. We're doing them in one show. So we did Daredevil, we did Luke Cage, we did Jessica Jones, um, Pat and I. Uh, did Fuller House season two and Fuller House, sorry, season one. And Fuller House season two actually drops uh, in a couple of weeks. So Pat and I will be doing that again. Um, and uh, there was, oh, and Robert Cooper and I did uh, Voltron Legendary Defender. So I opened up the idea to Sean, and Sean and I had actually talked about this on Long Road to Ruin. We did it once with the animated Batman series. But we had had this long conversation about there's so many like TV shows that we would like to talk about, and we just never really got a chance to. Well, God, if there's one thing Netflix and, and Hulu are known for is that they're dirty with television shows, both old and new. So we're going to dig into a lot of the ideas that we had over the last couple of years and present them as uh, two-hour reviews. The same as we, as I just laid out with previous ones, the Marvel shows, Full House, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we haven't quite nailed down which one and when we're gonna we're gonna do that. There's, like I said, there's already show reviews, and I've dubbed this now TV Party Tonight. Um, there's like you know, season two of Voltron uh, is already on the schedule. Iron Fist is already on the schedule. House, as I said, is already on the schedule for season two. Um, Sean and I are going to fill in some of the uh, some of the ex- uh, dates that currently don't have shows with some of the stuff that we talked about from the past that we liked. The slate of DC animated shows like Young Justice, Justice League, Justice League Unlimited, Batman Beyond, which I did not watch, so you know it'll be new to me. Um, um, other TV shows. I've talked Oz to death and The Wire, so probably not those, but there's plenty of other shows on Netflix um, that I didn't get a chance to watch when they first came out, like Narcos, that I wouldn't mind talking about. I've never seen a single season of Sons of Anarchy. What? So, uh, just stay tuned for that. up on the FX shows after the shield went off the air. You're surprised, huh? I've never seen a single episode of Sons of, Sons of Anarchy. Well, well, well no. The, the, the problem is the phone is doing this weird thing where there's about a three-second delay between... Ah, there's, there's a three-second delay between when you hear my voice... And when I can hear it in the background, so I think it's coming, it's coming across to you on a delay. I think that's the problem. Okay, I'll keep that in mind. 
Um, gotcha. tell, tell you what, Mark, um, uh, keep talking. I'm actually going to get off the phone for a second and, uh, number one, uh, try to get Alexis on the call. And then also, um, I'm going to – well, back here, I'll just call her while I'm on the line and then see if maybe that helps. So, yeah, um, keep talking while I uh, <laughs> while I call the squirrel queen up. Anyway, so that's the plan. Um, we've got two shows scheduled for January for On Trial. We're going to put Big Trouble in Little China on trial, uh, and that's going to debut on January 12th. And then on January 26th, uh, we're going to put Inception on trial. Another movie that I bought and never saw. Actually, I didn't buy it. My brother-in-law bought it for me for Christmas, insisting that it was a wonderful movie. Just simply fantastic. Couldn't say enough good things about it. And I've never seen it. (laughs) And every year, he asks me. In fact, every time he sees me, he says, have you still seen This was many, many years ago that he bought this movie for me. And he asks me all the time, hey, have you seen Inception? Nope. Oh, Doctor Strange, does that count? But I have not seen Inception. So I'm going to – we have a phone. We have a, we have a ringer. Yeah, it's me trying to call Alexis. Hi, this is Alexis with Honeysuckle Rose Creations. I'm afraid I can't get to my phone right now, but if you please leave your name, number, and time that you call, I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Have a good day. Hi, Alexis. It's Sean and Mark. Guess where you were supposed to be about 20 minutes ago? Don't worry. We'll call back. Don't worry. She might have thought the show was 930. I mean, I, I started the show earlier um, just because I I, I started the show uh, earlier just because um, – I used to do some running at night, but I've been able to get some exercise done during the day now, so I, I don't need to have that extra half an hour to go run and dry off. As I was saying, uh, uh, starts January 12th, uh, and then we'll do another one on January 26th. Big Trouble in Little China, that inception. Um, it's not changing at all. Metal Hammer of Doom is just taking a week off the first week of January, and then we're back on the 11th with with uh, a clutch retrospective part two we're calling it clutch deep cuts b-sides and covers then we'll be reviewing messiah uh, my friend's band my drummer and my, my old band is a drummer in this band now a new album uh not that long ago called uh if he dies Oops, lost my page if the the band is called If He Dies, uh, the the album is called Beneath the Waves. We're gonna we're gonna do a favor for them and review that, and then um, February first, we'll review the new Creator album, Gods of Violence. We're um, doing on the twenty fourth of January, legendary uh, defense. So, uh, like, as I said, trying to keep the level of content that we've had in 2016, I, um, I don't know if we'll do more than that, but backfill some of these dates that used to have Damn You Hollywood uh, with some other stuff. So, 
that's what we got going. Um, like I said, long road to ruin. We, we've kind of reached the end of the line. Uh, but we got a new show. I'm excited about it. I like, uh, I'm excited about this idea. It was an idea that I toyed around with, like I said, earlier in the year, when, around the time that we were looking at the X-Men movies. Um, so we'll see what happens, you know? Uh, we'll see what happens with these movies. I mean, Sean and I usually have some pretty good conversations, and now I think Sean's biggest wish has finally come true. Christmas has come early for Sean Comer. Santa Claus has oh. delivered a podcast that we don't have to rush through. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we don't we finally can actually talk about a single movie as long as we want. I figured two hours ought to do it. <laughs> I, I might have deserved that. I might deserve that little jab. I might have deserved that. I might deserve that little jab. Not a jab, not a jab, but you certainly we have both acknowledged that trying to shove three movies into you know, with two rather um and, and I'm including myself in this rather um, uh, boisterous personalities, we end up... I, I, look, how many times have I gotten to the third movie and just went, uh, stuff happened. Sean? You know, I, it, we just don't have any time. Um, I think we've gone... <laughs> we've had entire shows where, where, where I just go, you know, the whole third movie just gets cut, basically, because we run out of time. So that won't be an issue anymore. It's one of the nice things about what we're going to do here. Um, all right. Uh, as we wait for Alexis here, I am going to just kind of get things rolling. Um, I, you know, promise we jump right into this. And by jump, I mean wait 20 minutes and then do it. So here we go. Uh, the last part of the Harry Potter series, The Deathly Hollows, Part 1. Uh, we'll double back to some of this if Alexis comes right off the bat. One, I think this movie is unfairly criticized. Um, you know, it, we, we talked about the list on one of the previous shows, and this one was not ranked very high, if I remember correctly. I don't have the Rotten Tomatoes up in front of me, but I don't think it was scored very high there either. And... Hello? Trying again? Guess what time it is. Oh. Hey. Guess who fell asleep on the couch? I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> and the dumpster fire continues <laughs> to burn ever higher. All right. Live, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Beauty herself, Alexis Hayner. How you doing, Alexis? Doing well. Glad to be back. Glad to be slightly embarrassed. <laughs> Oh, it's okay. Listen to your voicemail. <laughs> Probably later. Um, all right, well, because I just sort of introduced. We're, we're right. We're right into the Deathly Hollows here. Um, are you Are you ready? Do you need a stretch? You You ready to go? I'm good to go. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> okay. Um. Two things right off the bat, and I'll say them very quickly so we can get this going. Uh, I've already kind of talked about that I think this is kind of unfairly rated. I think it's rated too low. As a standalone movie, not even as part one of a larger story, but as a standalone movie, I saw a lot of good with this first movie. 
Um, some of the criticisms that I've seen is there's not enough in it to warrant a full movie, and I would beg to disagree. Um, I saw a lot of similarities in this movie to actually The Fellowship of the Ring. Um, to, the, to those who are sick and tired of me comparing this to the Lord of the Rings trilogy, I apologize. But I, I could not help but notice, either purposeful or accidental, there were some allusions to the Fellowship of the Ring in this. Um, at least that I could see. Anyway, but even if you don't see another Harry Potter movie before or after, I did feel like it was a strong movie and it could stand on its own with a few tweaks. Uh, the second thing I'm going to tell you right off the bat, uh, Alexis actually posted something on Facebook about a lot of the emotional stuff in both of these movies. And I, and I wrote a comment back to her saying, I lasted all of a minute before I burst it into tears. And uh, I did that because of the scene right at the beginning where she um, mind erases her parents and takes herself out of the picture. Uh, I'm not going to get into a whole psychological reason why it affected me, but I, I started bawling. It really hit me hard. So I'm going to take a break uh, and let kind of Alexis jump in here with um, some reactions and thoughts to the uh, the Deathly Hollows Part 1. Well, I will go ahead and get this out of the way. This movie really shows how much it is David Yates and the others on the ass when they show how much they have cut out of the previous movie. There are so many scenes that if they had included the previous movie, really would have actually a little bit more emotional, had a little bit more weight to them. Probably my best example that we can go for part one before we talk about part two is the scene with Dobby. Dobby's uh, death, of course, is incredibly emotional. But the fact is that he has been a huge part in the last few books. As you heard that in the fourth book, Dobby, after leaving the Malfoys, he's working at Hogwarts now. So he actually becomes a bigger part of Harry's life throughout the series. In the yeah. tournament, he's the one who gives him the gillyweed in the Order of the Phoenix. He's the one who finds the room of requirements. And somebody needs to turn down their radio in the background because I'm getting a weird echo thing on my cell phone, and it sounds really weird. Um, I'll turn the volume down on my computer. Hopefully that helps. All right. Yeah, sorry. Every time I say something, I'm hearing my own voice in the background. I'm like, okay, that's going to go a little weird. Yeah, blog talk radio, and I don't know if it's my setup or it's just blog talk, okay, produces an echo effect. It sort of comes and goes. Um, mm-hmm. So I just try to work through it. <laughs> but again, I feel that if we had had more scenes of Dobby actually being, doing the parts that he had in the previous stories, his death scene would have been so much greater. Because this isn't just a character who showed up briefly in the Chamber of Secrets and then showed up again here. So he's been helping Harry through everything. He's been by his side. I would uh, <laughs> agree with you that Dobby's, uh, Dobby's health in this just sort of comes out of nowhere. Um, mm-hmm. Not that I hated it or anything, but it does seem like it, it does seem like he, you know, he picked up a phone and phoned a friend 
to just suddenly appear the day. Though I, I take nothing away from his death. That made me sad both times I saw it. Sean, I think you wanted, I heard you breathing in the background. <laughs> Did you want to jump in? You heard me laughing in exasperated frustration. <laughs> Fair enough. I suck the media's part Go of ahead, my Alexis. Talk blog. Um, what else did you want to add? Well, there is. Oh, Go sorry, ahead, Alexis. Did you say Sean or me? <laughs> okay. Sorry, again, with the echo, I, I was kind of hard to hear who you were talking to. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, um, there is something else I want to talk about, Mark. If you remember when we discussed Order of the Phoenix um, about a week and a half ago, I brought up the scene that was cut from the book where they reveal that the Lord Umbridge was, in fact, the one who set the Dementors on Harry. You said that they were going to draw the line there, saying that maybe making, a, making her that, that evil was over the line, just a tiny bit. So I just said, we're going to stick a pin in that. And we're going to talk about that when we come back to the Deathly Hallows. You've now seen the part that Miss Dolores Umbridge played in the registration for Muggle-born wizards and witches in the movie. Do you still think that that was over the line? Um, no. I, I can see your point in that it's very much in character for her. Um, I'm going to stand by my point that dramatically in, in, in the movie we're talking about, um, I, I might have been a bit too much, but when you take a step back and you see her in, in the Deathly Hollows, it seems to fit. It, it's kind of like the Lucius Malfoy character in that sense, where he, the, the more you see him in these movies, the, the the more character traits you start to see in him. And he also shows somewhat of a change. You know, he, by the end of the Deathly Hollows, too, when him and his family sneak off across the bridge, I mean, he's a broken man. And when you see him from where he starts to where he falls, you know, to where he lands by the end of that series, it all makes sense uh, in, the, in the long view. So I, so I agree, agree with you in that sense that... Um, this character's name who now escapes me. Um, Umbridge, right? That's her name? Dolores Umbridge, that's right. Dolores Umbridge, that's right. Uh, In the long view of her character, sure. I think in the short view in just that movie, still seemed a little suddenly mustache twirly. But, um, you know, I don't think that's, that's, that's one of those hard and fast things where there's a right or wrong words. I think it's more of a subjective thing. Um, before we go any further, I want to make sure Sean uh, doesn't have any notes for us uh, on the making of these. I know they were shot, I believe at the same time. Uh, but, but as far as what they cut, what they left in, what some, you know, what, what some of the production history was, uh, is there anything that you wanted to bring up, Sean? Uh, nothing much that's particularly interesting, except that it was part of that uh, that trend that kind of started with The Matrix and really continued through the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Uh, let's shoot the two sequels immediately back-to-back. 
Um, I, I got to imagine there are a lot of directors, producers, actors, the, the whole like, who would really like to just shove a steel-toed boot squarely up the ass of whoever came up with that with that idea. Oh, go ahead, Echo. I'll let you finish your thought. Must resist Lou Gehrig impression. Um, seriously. Um, no, I, I really don't have any notes in that because I think I was mostly focused just on just kind of watching and enjoying the movies. And I, I, for one, for all the complaints people had about the pacing and everything, um, I was I was too caught up in just being a fanboy to really be a critic. Um, well, maybe not fanboy. Fanboy is the wrong term. That kind of implies that I would be that nitpicky. But just enjoying just how intense and violent and kind of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Unflinchingly brutal. This movie could be for what so many adults write off as books for kids and stuff that your average dignified grown-up person with a degree in adulting just doesn't read. So it was really hard for me to complain too much about it creatively. Like I said, fucking dumpster fire. Um, And I totally get your Lord of the Rings comparison. Uh, 100%. And actually, that was kind of what I liked about it. Because as I've said before, the original Lord of the Rings trilogy, the extended cuts especially, are three of my very favorite movies of all time. Just like barely a cut below... Um, Iron Man, The Shawshank Redemption, and The Blues Brothers. Oh, the Echo's gone. Neato burrito with Cheetos. Um, and it's you know it, it's weird. Alexis mentioned last week how how Joe Rowling talked about. Uh, she had such a hard time killing off her character, and now somebody made a pithy little George R. R. Martin meme out of that. But you know, as you watch these, it's one of the few times you see a movie that's geared toward this kind of audience where, as I said before, death is death. You know, life ends even in the wizarding world, and the, the, there are no punches pulled here. Uh, there's no Deus Ex Machina that's bringing back uh, Dobby, Fred, or Tonks, or Mad Eye Moody. They're gone, and I appreciate that because it shows how far these movies have come from the first movies where I could see how there would be a complaint that it really ignored there being a sense of con- of consequence. 
uh, you know, right up until Harry basically lampshades that very fact in later movies. But they hear that there's a cost to everything. Um, there's a cost to war. There's a cost to standing up for what you believe in, uh, which, again, they, they come right out of the gate and establish that, like Mark, like Mark says. Uh, Hermione has no choice but to obliviate her parents for all intents and purposes for the purpose of protecting them. Uh, because she knows that what she has to go and do is is not only putting her own life and limb in danger, but it could possibly endanger the two people she loves most in all the world. And, and I've I've got a little bit of experience with sometimes having to several times over let go of people that you love sort of both for your own good and for their own good. And it's not always life and death, obviously, you know, we're, we're not all Spider-Man who are Spider-Man who are desperately trying to keep Mary Jane and Gwen Stacy from having all of the pumpkin bombs dropped on their head by the green goblin. But that's a very real sacrifice that people have to make. And it's a theme of these movies that it's it's very easy for me to take to heart and to gravitate towards and sometimes to even kind of look at and go, no, no, as much as I love these movies, that's just not something I can deal with right now. I want to uh, throw an idea out. And it will go, so uh, in case we continue to have sound issues, know that when I stop talking, Alexis respond. When Alexis is done, John responds. Um, okay. The idea is this. Uh, first, uh, let, me, let me quickly address a point that Sean made about the, about the character deaths. Poor Mad-Eye Moody has the most unceremonious death. And, and, I, and as I say that out loud, oh, yeah, that, that happens to Fred as well. People are dying off screen. Can work in one way, but I feel from the drama in another. I know it's Harry's story. This is Harry. And the more I watched this, the more I saw a very classical uh, hero's journey in Harry. Which is why when we get to part two, I can safely say more appreciated the ending this time than I did when I saw it the first time. Uh, but we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. They could have afforded to spend a little less time with Harry and Hermione, and they what became of these characters. I mean, you do it once. Moody, you know, is dead. You know, and, and, he, and Harry says what he says after that sequence. Fine, I understood it then. But when, we, but when all the Death Eaters start attacking at the end of the Death Eaters, and they've got these characters dropping off left and right, I'm like, can't we see some of this? Visual medium, people. And I'm sure it's, it's, it's expounded upon in the books. Alexis will I'm sure, illuminate me momentarily. And movies are not books. Books are for burning. Uh, I need to see 
what you, I need to see things on the screen. Um, and I and it's one of the criticisms I have actually of De- of Deathly Hollows too is there's a lot of stuff going on in these things. And again, I would go to the Battle of Pelennor Fields as a great example of you don't have to spend every living minute with your heroes. You can show other people, um, you know, being affected by the, the events of this world and make it meaningful. Um, that's actually not what I want to talk about. <laughs> uh, just, just, I just needed to address the Mad-Eye Moody thing because I really like that character and they, they gave him a lot of stuff right at the beginning and then they kill him off screen. And I'm like, what the fuck? What happened here? Um, it took me a minute to figure out even who they were talking about. So just as an aside. But I'm going to throw this idea out there now that we're talking about the beginning of the film. Uh, as much as I like the Deathly Hollows, and I had a lot of favorable things to say about it in the beginning uh, of the show. My one thing I think I might have changed or cut is, and this might sound funny, it's why I want to talk about it. I wish they had started the movie with Harry and Hermione and uh, Ron already looking for the Horcruxes. Um, I wish we had skipped the wedding sequence. I wish we had skipped the car chase at the beginning, the broom chase, as it were, uh, and the whole everyone's got to look like Harry thing. Um, I got it. I understood the purpose of it. Still thought it was unnecessary. I would have liked to have seen a... a little bit more of their journey and the, the arduousness of the journey so that when Ron, while well, he's, you know, I understood that the thing was kind of the, uh, the, the Horcrux they were carrying around was kind of like the, uh, the ring, um, you know, in the sense that it was somewhat corrupting them, making them, or, you know, at least making them irritable. I would, when Ron leaves, I would have liked a better lead up. Like I, I, w- I would have, I felt like they should have started with the the raid on uh, Gringotts to get the uh, the real Horcrux. I feel like that should have opened the movie, and then uh, a little bit more, and spend a little bit more time with them on the road. If you're gonna say, you know, Ron's listening to the radio to hear to make sure he hears his family, show me more of that. Show me some some framing around Ron and the radio so that when he finally says, do you know why I do this? I'm listening to hear my family. And I think it makes the, the final blow up where he goes off that much more uh, effective and, uh, and emotional. I would have also liked to have seen him uh, get the sword. Uh, no, it's, it's Harry who gets the sword, but um, I would have liked to have seen Ron when he went off. You know, um, I would have, you know, he, they talk about it. He, he tells them what happened. I would have liked to have seen it. And there would have been room for it had they cut the nonsense in the beginning out. So those are some of my thoughts there. I, I wanted to start with Gringotts, expand the hard part of the journey, make a bigger deal of Ron blowing up, show a little bit more of that, and then the rest of the movie, I think, works for me. Alexis? like the scenes in the beginning of part one first of all again with Hermione uh, erasing her parents memories I agree that is an incredibly moving scene 
Uh, I, I kind of laugh, though, because so many people don't quite get the symbolism of her picture disappearing. Cause I, re- I actually saw some comments online saying, oh, apparently her parents are going to have to explain why they have blank frame pictures with nobody in them now. And I don't think the pictures were actually being erased. I think it was more symbolic of what she was doing. I think it was a directing decision, not an actual consequence of the spell. But there was so much that they really needed to establish before this. I think that if we had jumped right in to the Horcrux hunting, it would have been too much too fast. I prefer to look at this and remember that Harry is not just doing this for himself on Hermione. He is doing this for the wizarding world. Uh, the wedding was in the books. The wedding is preluded in Half Blood Prince Floor. That that is Floor Delacour, of course, from Triwizard Tournament, marrying Bill Weasley. She comes back in the sixth book, and they establish how they know each other, and you know that they're engaged. And there was even a great scene at the end of the Half Blood Prince where they talk about maybe they should cancel the wedding, and they say, "I don't think that's what Dumbledore would want." It. I think Dumbledore would be happier knowing that there's a little more love in the world. The fact is that this is a country at war. Dangerous things are happening. People are disappearing. But these guys still want to live their lives. They still want to try to be happy. And it's not until they get that Patronus from Kingsley Shacklebolt saying, Ministry's dead, Ministry's fallen, y'all better get your asses out of there. I think it leads a lot to the fact that, again, you look, you compare so much of what happened in the Wizarding World to World War II before, you know, before things really got bad. People knew that things were happening around the world, but they were still trying to live their lives. And I really think it's important to show that, to show that these characters still wanted to try to, you know, just be themselves. I also think it calls back more to the fact that Harry really – he's this obviously really in love with Jenny Weasley. What? Mark, what did you say? It's fun having a, a delay, isn't it? <laughs> no, I said, it's well, first I said it's, it, it's fun having a delay where I say something and I can play it. Um, <laughs> I was starting to say I don't necessarily with you. I think it is – establish um, the world in which they spent so much time building in the other movies. And I know that the book is written a certain way, and so they have to be a little bit more faithful to the book. I think just from a cinematic point of view, you can do the wedding and you can do how that affects, how how Turn of Voldemort affects the wedding as a microcosm of how the whole greater world is being affected. I don't think Harry needed to be there. I think we cut away from Harry, show that, show the ministry falling, show these people aligned with Voldemort sort of struggling with it like the the Malfoys do. I think that is one of the things I looked at with these movies is there's so much singular focus on Harry that they don't make time for anything else unless he's directly involved, which I don't know. I don't like it. I would like to see the world existing doing something else. Again, start with, you know, start with Gringotts, but then cut away to the wedding. Cut away to something else. You know, what, 
insistence that these main characters had to be a part of all these major events seems to handle the same sort of scope and don't do that, clearly it can be done. Mark, one thing I'm, I'm, I don't understand what you're saying. You're saying start with Gringotts and then cut the wedding. Gringotts happened in the second movie later down the road. Are you saying do like a flash forward kind of thing or? The uh, one and two. I thought the the raid on Bellatrix's um, Bellatrix's uh, vault, where they where they grab the necklace. I thought that happens in the first movie. No, the raid on the vault is in the second movie. Huh. I apologize. I watching them back to back. I'm now confusing things up. Um, I'm trying to think of what followed then. Once they, once they. Oh, you know what I'm thinking of? They they leave the wedding and they go into the city. Uh, and there's there's that there's that elongated sequence where they're being chased by uh, the Death Eaters and they blow up the cafe and all of that. Um. Okay, I'm yeah, I'm sorry about that. I'm confusing things. I don't know. I just uh, so I have to sort of double back on the points that I was making. Still think to sort of <laughs> save the last five minutes of this podcast. Still think we could have done a little bit more of you know, Harry's over here, stuff is happening over there, and they don't necessarily have to be in the same place. Um, I'll let you go ahead and respond to that, and then let's pitch it to Sean. Well, again, I do like that they stayed with the opening scenes that they did, but I will agree that there are a couple scenes I really wish they'd fleshed out and actually filmed those, even though Harry wasn't there. My particular favorite example is the uh, Deluminator scene where Ron talks about the ball of light and hearing Hermione's voice come out of it. I think that would have been great to have actually seen that instead of just hearing Ron explain it like he did in the book. I think it would have been kind of cool to actually have that sequence of him um, hiding in the pub, trying to sleep, and then he hears uh, his name being said by Hermione. He wakes up a little bit, and he pulls out the deluminator. Just just even that little bit, I think, would have been really good to see. But that probably would have spoiled the surprise of having Ron show up and the one who pulls Harry out of the frozen pond when he gets the sword of Gryffindor. So it has its consequences if you do want to. It would have looked cool, but it's like what's more important, to have that a really cool shot like that or to have the surprise of Ron be the one who saves Harry from the frozen water? Yeah, six of one, half a dozen of the other. Um, go ahead, Sean. <laughs> I don't have just a whole lot to add, um, except that I'll say that Alexis kind of changed my mind a little bit. Uh, because I, I did kind of agree with Mark in that I, at first I thought, well, it really be a lot more fun if you get to more of the really thrilling stuff that we all kind of want to see. But then when I kind of looked at it the other way, I realized, no, if we're talking about really telling a layered story and really wanting to make this world feel 
deep and real and rife with this emotional connection, then you do have to show that, again, that that theme of everything having its costs, the idea that this war has touched every corner of life in the wizarding world. So you do have to show both the parts that are interrupted and seemingly destroyed forever and the people who are stalwartly determined to press on no matter the cost, um, like Bill and like Bill and Floor. So amidst all this and amidst all the really unfortunate, yes, admittedly really unfortunate off-screen deaths and the characters who don't really feel like they do get a, a good demise. It's, I felt like the first movie really balanced out well compared especially with all of the actions and thrills and uh, climactic clashes of the second movie. That's uh, that's one of the reasons why I think it actually works as being split into two. Okay. I know what my mistake was. I'm right. I just keep calling it the wrong thing. It's not Gringotts. You're right. That's the second movie, and that's the bit with the sword. Um, and they're trying to get the, the Horcrux. That's the, um, the Hufflepuff cut, cut. That's the second mm-hmm. movie. That actually isn't what I was referring to. I'm referring to when they drink the Polyjuice Potion and invade the Ministry. Oh, right. I'd like to also add, I don't know who the three actors who played the uh, disguised Harry, Ron, and Hermione were, but they did a really good job. I absolutely love all the little nuances, the panic in their, on their face. You forget for a second that that's not Radcliffe, Watson, and uh, Grint, that those are three completely different actors. And I think they did a really good job. I, I would absolutely agree with you. So to be clear, that's a great sequence in the movie. Um, they, you know, they, they obviously can't necessarily start with that. Um, because you because you still have to give them the the the, the illuminator the tail of the beetle the bard and everything, um, so not to believe with it, but um, to, just to make myself clear because I was being unclear by calling things the wrong name, uh, open up with them on the road um, and that mounting frustration of where the hell are all these horcruxes. Um, <laughs> And just that that sort of mounting frustration, it it uh, sort of down a little bit when they have this plan to go go to the ministry. I have to remember it's the ministry, not Gringa, <laughs> to get into the ministry, and then you know, and then they can kind of move forward, and then you can cut away from that to uh, the stuff that we were talking about before, like the wedding and everything. That 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 now now that I have the information in front of me. That was what I was trying to pitch. So you're saying we could have done a 
brief flash forward to them and then done a flashback kind of thing? Um, kind of. Uh, if you if you don't read if you've never read the book, you don't know uh, what order these things took place in in the book. Um, one of the fun things that you can do in adaptation is, you know, as uh, what uh, as Peter Jackson did with the Lord of the Rings is, you know, and we, we talked about this before, gave certain lines to certain characters that that are, you know that he didn't that were not in the book or uh, changed around some sequences. I mean, you know, my father's talked often about how, you know, the two towers doesn't end with, uh, with, with the, uh, the battle of Helm's deep. That's a, uh, that, that's, it's like something like a minus curse that takes two pages or some crazy thing that he told me, um, that it actually ends further into what they show you in the return of the King movie. So, I mean, there are, there are, there are ways to approach it that I think make it more, uh, more effective cinematically. So that's that's what I'm saying is, never mind how it goes in the book. I you know I would say this thing is happening, and the ministry thing kind of happening at the same time maybe, um, starting with that, starting with the, with the Harry Potter stuff, and then cutting away to something else, and then cutting back. Um, other than that, go ahead. Go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I didn't say anything, Sean. Did you say something? I'm sorry, Sport. I was thinking about okay, you. I thought one, so one of you was about to say. <laughs> I thought I, I thought you were going to chime in there, Alexis. That's why. I go ahead. Um, if not, then we well, can move on. If I did have to add anything, again, I think it comes down to: Would it have been cool to film it and see it, or is it better to have the weight of the surprise? Uh, again, you're talking about. Uh, showing the ministry fallen or falling, which would have been really cool to see. Uh, you know, the Death Eaters kind of taking control, uh, Shacklebolt, that's the new Ministry of Magic, uh, being killed. But if we'd seen that, would there be as much weight to the message that we get from Shacklebolt that ministry has fallen, the minister is dead, they're coming? So, Again, I was like, well, would it have been his point? Because I remember in the book, uh, when we got to that scene, you know, we're in the middle of the wedding, everyone's dancing, and then the Patronus shows up, and you can feel just how everything just suddenly turns into, oh, crap. You know, he just slams into a brick wall, (laughs) turns around, and gets going in the other direction. You feel the weight of what has just happened. So, I know well, those, I, those are all fair Sean, points. Sean, what do you think? Um, so, Sean, what do you think? Do you think it would have been less impactful if we had seen that before we got the message? Okay, I, I, I'm sorry, I kind of missed part of that because the sound because the sound cut out. Could, could you please rephrase your arguments a little more clearly in the question? Do you think the impact would have mm-hmm. been lost if we had had the pre, the scenes filmed and shown? rather than just being told what had happened. I don't know. It's it's so hard to say because I've I've seen it and kind of accepted it the way that I, the way that I've seen it. Um 
I, I guess I was at such a tough choice because that's kind of what, what amazes me so much about these two movies is normally when you have a movie that you have to split into two parts, it's easy to come to the assumption that it's probably a bit bloated that they split it in two because they just wanted to wedge in every goddamn thing that they could. You know, like like The Hobbit, all of a sudden going from two to three movies because Peter Jackson had a bunch of had a bunch of shit from the appendices that he wanted to shoot. Uh, that's an example of kind of extending something unnecessarily. On the other hand, what I like so much about these two is the challenge, okay, well, you didn't really show this the way you could have, or you could have fleshed that out better. But then I go back and I watch it, and I go, man, can I really imagine that without some of this other stuff, though? And that's the part that I have a tough time with, because obviously... You know, you're talking about by the time you get through both movies. What what are we looking at? North of four hours worth of a single story that we're telling? I'm like, well, you can either make this even longer or you can cut something. So I guess I would fire back with a question. What would you cut to actually show that? I mean, I'm open to having my mind changed, but that's the part that I'm having a, having a tough time with, is it actually works really well as it is. So uh, I'll just point blank, just ask you and Mark, what do you what do you cut, and how do you think that affects the movie if you take it out? Well, I agree. I, I don't well, think there was really anything you could cut. Uh, Sorry, Mark. No, no, you're fine. <laughs> you're fine. Um, like I said, I'm not, I don't think, and this is, again, a subjective opinion, um, that beginning chase adds anything to the movie. I, At this point, if you don't get that Harry enormous amount of guilt for the people who have given their lives to protect him reestablished in the, in the first five to ten minutes of this movie, which is all that's happening. You know, the, the entire bit of them secreting, secreting, getting him out, uh, out of the Dursleys into a safe house, the whole sequence is about is a lead up to him wandering off and having Ron go after him. Have that exchange about I don't need anyone else dying for me. This isn't just about you, stupid. <laughs> you know, is Ron's response. This is this is much bigger than that. Um, I just felt like this had been well worn territory at this point, and it didn't need reestablishing. And, I feel like the movie is stronger if we just start on the road already. That's at the end of the Half-Blood Prince with them staring out into the distance, um, going, you know, and I, and, I, and I mentioned this in the 
Where he says, you know, I'm going alone, and Hermione says, I you, and falls into the no, that 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 uh, Lord of the Rings. No, she says, uh, you're you know, you're a great guy, but you're going with you, and um, has this look on his face of we are. Um, you know, so I'm expecting because I forgot how the movie starts. As soon as you know, the, you see the Warner Brothers logo, them on the road, and you know, and struggling with we have absolutely no clue how to find these stupid Horcruxes unless Harry has a vision. Uh, and even then, it's a bit vague. I think you know, in terms of what do you cut so that you can show more, cut that whole sequence. Um, let's let's get going on the road. And I know Alexis feels differently. Um, certainly, you don't get to see Man Eye Moody get killed, but you don't get to see him get killed anyway. So I don't know what you, what you're gaining here. I'm gonna let you have the the last word on this, and then I've either let's move on to something else with the first movie, or let's move into the second one, Alexis. Well, again, I do disagree. I think it was important to show how these are how these events are affecting others, not just the three. And I do really prefer to start with the scenes that we did. Uh, yeah, Mad-Eye Moody's uh, death, it, it is actually kind of quick in the book. If it's done exactly like that. They show up and they go, Mad-Eye's dead. Uh, there is a really great scene in the book, though, where when, Harry, when they sneak into the Ministry of Magic and Harry sees that Umbridge has taken... Uh, Moody's eye and is using it for her own personal lookout. He is just beyond furious. You know, it's like you know, it's like how dare she do something like that? And he actually takes the eye before they leave, and later on, after they escape, he actually takes a quick moment and buries the eye in the woods. He, like, I'm going to give him a, you know, it's like this is all I have. I'm going to give him a proper burial. Because it's very sweet and it's a very cute little scene, and I do kind of wish they had kept that in because. Yeah, again, she's got the eye using it, and it would have just been so great if Harry just couldn't been like, you've got to be kidding me, just pried it off the door. <laughs> I have a direct question for you, Alexis, um, and in one of these rare moments where I need to know if there's, if there's more in the book on the subject. I was really into the idea of the Deathly Hollows and Voldemort's quest to find the Elder Wand. And I'm wondering okay. if there's more to it in the book. The introduction of these things comes late in this movie, and then it ends with him grave robbing Dumbledore, which is fine and everything, but I'm going to say this out loud and then you tell me if it, if it actually happens in the book or not. To have seen sort of a parallel journey for uh, Voldemort. I would have liked to have seen the anxiety and the the urgent, the, the urgency on Voldemort's part to find this weapon that he wants. And I would have liked more scenes of that happening instead of these flashes, these, these flashes that Harry has. I wanted to see full extended scenes of Voldemort on the hunt for this. Well, unfortunately, in the books, all we do see of Voldemort for most of the movie is through Harry's flashes. You know, he, he, they are connected because, as they establish in the, in the second half of the Deathly Hallows, Harry does contain part of Voldemort's soul, and he can see into his mind. 
There are a lot more scenes of him looking for the Elder Wand. It's not just so quickly paced. Furthermore, there's a scene at the wedding that actually establishes the Deadly Hallows a little bit more, which I kind of wish they had included, but again, it probably would have dragged on. Uh, you guys will remember that uh, Luna Lovegood's father was wearing a necklace with the Deathly Hallow symbol on it at the wedding. Uh, that, that's how they start up saying we should go talk to him. You know, he might know what that symbol is. Well, there's another in the book. There's another guest at the wedding, Victor Crumb, uh, the other combat from the uh, Triwizard Tournament. He was invited as Fleur's guest, and of course, to hit on Hermione again. Yeah. Well, he's talking to Harry, and he mentions the symbol around this. As it turns out, that symbol, the Deathly Hallows, has actually been used by Gellert Grindwald as kind of his symbol. And to him, that's not a symbol of the Deathly Hallows. That's a symbol of a dark wizard. That, that's a symbol of dark magic. And it's kind of interesting because it runs parallel to the idea of the swastika. If you, for those of you who know, the swastika was not created by Hitler and the Nazi regime, it was originally a symbol, it still is a symbol of peace in uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Jainism. It is really only to Western society that that image is now associated with something so evil, but for many parts of the world, they still don't see it like that. To them, it is still a symbol of peace. And I thought it was kind of an interesting parallel that one wizard would look at the Deathly Hallow symbol, he sees it as the mark of a dark wizard. There's others who say, we know what this was before Grindelwald uh, took it. So, I, I just thought that was an interesting parallel. Agreed. Um, all right. Sean, any last words on the Deathly Hollows Part 1? Um, things that we haven't talked about other than me trying to rewrite this film? <laughs> um. Uh, not really a whole lot. I'm a little off my game because all the technical difficulties and and everything have completely thrown me. Um, Deathly Hollows one is it's excellent. I would yeah. You know, there, there are a lot of people who would consider this blasphemy because how dare you compare these two? Harry Potter was so much better than better than Hunger Games, but. You know, the pacing is really not all that unlike um, a little bit of what the problem was with Mockingjay. Uh, You've got one movie that's very methodical, very slow. Uh, It isn't exactly action-packed. It's spending a lot of time with characters and building and building tension in a very gradual way. And it builds up to a very explosive finale. Uh, so I think you really have to be prepared for that because it's it's the only way to kind of tell a four-hour story without telling it in one shot because unlike the extended cut of Return of the King this movie all cut together in one, well, it would be really quite disjointed because you would have half the movie that was, again, extreme, extremely methodical, doesn't seem like much is happening, and then all of a sudden in the second half, all of the things, everything goes to shit. Um, and 
As for your issue about wanting to see Voldemort spending a little more time on his parallel quest, you know, I actually kind of agree with that. Uh, Again, I don't know how you do it because that previous problem is this is one of the most tightly structured (laughs) two-part, four-hour stories you will ever see, in my opinion anyway. I'm sure there's plenty of people out there out there who would differ and just call me a flaming dipshit whose next shit should be a hedgehog. Um, but you know, I, I kind of reflect on the original three Star Wars movies and how in those, in each of the movies, you do get to spend a little bit of time with Darth Vader. You get, and granted, there, there's really only so much acting that James Earl Jones can do as just a voice and that the actor can really perform in that iconic suit. But you get a sense of the stakes for him as well and really what his, motiva- what his motivations are. And they become stronger from movie to movie to movie. Uh, you don't get quite so much of that here. I felt with Voldemort, you got a lot of him of a lot of him scheming and executing, but it didn't really feel like you got feel like you got a sense sometimes of what was really going through going through his head of of necessarily his own sense of desperation. Kind of kind of like what you said. Um, would have been nice, but, I mean, we're, we're not just talking about substituting one scene for another. We're talking about adding a whole new thread, a whole new element, uh, kind of um, a whole different backbeat to the movie. And unfortunately... I'm just not sure how you would pull that off. So yeah, there there would need to be some significant rewriting of this film. Um, time we've got at this point. <laughs> so let's go ahead and move on to the Deathly Hollows Part Two, which revolves around two two things really happening at the same time. You have the. Uh, you have the Death Eaters led by Voldemort who are going to assault Hogwarts. Uh, Harry and his friends have gone there to find the final uh, Horcrux. Um, and so it becomes, and I actually didn't get this the first time I saw it. I, it made more sense to me now. Uh, basically, they don't know where the Horcrux is and they're not even sure what it is until a little bit later on in the movie. Um and the Death Eaters are, you know, are there to to get Harry and to stop him from destroying this Horcrux. Uh, and so the whole thing is a big prey for time. You have cool sort of out in front, protect, you know, stalling essentially, stopping the Death Eaters from getting to Harry. While Harry searches high and low for this uh, for this Horcrux. That's that's basically the movie. Um, what we find out, you know, we get Snake's full story. We get uh, his attachment to Lily and uh, Lily Potter. 
and what he's done for Harry all this time. A lot of he's sort of been the man in the shadows, protecting Harry from this and that, um, because you know he loved Lily. Uh, you know, was what was established. Um, you also get that, and and this I I, I missed a detail here, so we just sort of fill this in. But apparently, um, Dumbledore had been cursed, and I guess he allowed Snape to kill him, which had the added effect of making Snape look good in, in favor uh, in Voldemort's favor. Um, if I've got a detail or wrong there, just tell me after. But uh, you know, ultimately. A big part of what's happening here is is the rehabilitation um, of Snape's character. Once you find out all this other all these other details, we learn that Harry has to sacrifice himself in order to defeat Voldemort. Uh, he is the uh, he is the last Horcrux, as it as it were. Part of Voldemort's soul is in him, and so there's this whole you know lead up to the sacrifice and then rebirth that happens, and then we have our final showdown. And of course, the best part of this movie is Neville's speech. <laughs> I think we can all agree. <laughs> People die every day. What the hell, man? It's great. <laughs> Stand down, Neville. No, I won't. I love that bit. And of course, Neville's your big hero at the end of you know when he kills the other Horcrux, which is uh, Nagigi, the, uh, the the snake. That, that it was fun. It's a very urgent movie. Once it gets rolling, once they get to Hogwarts. And they know that that doom is upon them. That uh, Voldemort's forces have uh, have come, and the and the um, starts, and the melee ensues, and all of this is happening. And Harry is scrambling to try to solve a mystery. Um, it's it's all great. It's all fun. I talked before about the sort of on uh, off screen deaths. I'm not going to belabor or repeat that point, but that's one of the, I think the weaker elements of the second part is again, too much time spent with Harry. Other than that, this is the one that I didn't really have any criticism of in the sense of here's what I do differently. Uh, I actually think this one's pretty perfect. I'll go ahead and end I run through of this movie by saying this. Complained at the top of these shows that I wanted a more a more warriors ending with Harry. I really wanted the sockets of Voldemort. With that expectation now out of my head, and just appreciating what I saw in front of me and studying it, I actually did get something like that. There's a great bit. Grabs Voldemort, calls him Tom Riddle, and says, "Let's end this. Let's end this together." And they go off the roof, and they, you know, and they they fly around for a bit, and then they land, and they have their let they have their final wizards duel. When I when I say it out loud, I think that might have been what bothered me. There's a there was a style of fighting in this movie. Seemed uh, less than earthy, less than physical. Um, you've got the, and there's a lot of this in Fantastic Beasts, by the way. So good at their magic that they, you know, they fire shot, they fire their wands like guns. 
and then they just deflect them, and it it isn't visually uh, engrossing to me. Um, and then, and, and it is what it is. I can live with it. It's just not particularly visually stimulating, I think. And then you have this duel where they're pointing their wands at one another, and it's a, it's a laser going back and forth. Um, and while the the end effect of Voldemort turning to ash and flying into the sky is fine, uh, they've done this bit before with the with the wands pointing at one another, and and just not that I wanted them to copy this necessarily, but just think about Return of the Jedi. Uh, I'm assuming we've all seen it. I know I have. I'm pretty sure Sean has. Uh, you've got Luke and Vader in this very emotional lightsaber fight. And it goes on for a while. And at some points, Vader gets the upper hand, and then Luke starts to get angry. You know, and there's a threat of uh, of them going after his sister if he won't turn to the dark side. And he flips out and nearly goes to the dark side himself. And at one point, he's just hammering on Vader up his hand, and he realizes, oh shit, I've gone a step too far. Um, and then he kind of just throws his lightsaber away, and you know, we all know what happens next. He gets, you know, force lightning until, uh, spoiler alert, Vader throws the Emperor into a pit. Very funny, uh, by the way, uh, adaptation of that in Robot Chicken, for those that care. Um, that's, you know, for, as, as far as final confrontations go, thinking about that as I watch this one, have this very emotional sword fight basically that sort of ends in one of the your your hero nearly losing his mind. And Voldemort, there was some fun stuff there, but that last bit, they're just pointing wands at one another. And I'm thinking to myself, eh, really emotionally, maybe we could have given this more oomph. Just just a thought. So, um, not that I didn't like it, like I said, I, I have accepted it, I have enjoyed it, I really did uh, come away from that feeling like I got a satisfying ending, uh, but I still, there's this part of me that just wanted more, wanted more emotion, wanted more visual stimuli. Throwing a lot out there, don't necessarily have to address it all, but I'm going to pitch, go ahead Alexis. Kind of hard to jump in after all of that. <laughs> kind of hard to jump in after all of um, that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. Um, it's actually kind of funny you kept bringing up the death scenes off screen because in, um, you, you mentioned Fred's death, and actually Fred's death is in the book. And it's 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 pretty horrible. You know, it's a really strong death scene. I remember the first time I read it, I did this. I mentioned this when we talked about Sirius Black's death scene that I went back and reread. I'm like, no, I, I misread that. That didn't happen. I did the same thing when I read Fred's death. I'm like, uh-uh, no, she did not just, oh, God, she did. You know, it's very hard to take in that that character's <laughs> been killed off. And it's a really compelling scene uh, when he dies. You know, you, you again. You mentioned about Neville's speech. Neville. It's interesting because Neville is actually one of the strongest 
bravest characters in the series. And again, this is something I wish they had mentioned. Um, the prophecy that the, you know the boy will be born at the end of July, the one who will have the power to destroy the Dark Lord. The fact is that Harry was not the only child who that prophecy was uh, could have alluded to. The other child was Neville, and it was he was so close to having Harry's life, and vice versa. The fact is that Neville came from two strong, brave horrors, you know, that his parents got a fate worse than death when they were tortured into insanity. And when he pulls that sword out of the sorting hat, which going back to the Chamber of Secrets, only a true Gryffindor can do, you finally see the full crux of his character. That He's always been a joke character. He's always been made fun of, but he is a true Gryffindor. He is brave. He is loyal. He is strong. He was not put into that house as a joke. He has always been a wonderful character. I love the scene where he points out, point out his bruises and said, yeah, I was supposed to do the uh, Cruciatus curse on first year. I refused. I got beaten up for it. You know, he's, he's making a stand. He, in the books, he is the one who's leading Dumbledore's army now with Harry, Ron, and Hermione gone. He has taken up the charge. And it's just wonderful seeing this character who, again, we have just seen him get poked fun at and made fun of and just been a total wimp. And, no, he is none of those things. He is really such a compelling character, and I love that we see that. Yes, he's a very strong character. I really like, By the end of this thing, I really liked him. I would have liked to have seen uh, a little bit more of him and Luna, actually. Um, yeah. I'm sure there's more of that in the book. But uh, it's, it sort of comes out of nowhere in this movie. And then, then they leave it kind of nowhere. You know, they're sitting next to each other. It's inferred. And I don't necessarily need everything sort of ex- just explained out to me. But I don't know. I, I, I feel like a lot of these movies that we've seen over the course of the last month are unnecessarily subdued in some ways than they, than they needed to be. But maybe that's because I'm used to things in the movies being overly exuberant, <laughs> overly produced. Um, Michael Bay, can you hear me? So I, yeah, so I'm, maybe that, I'm just used to that. And, and so to see, a movie, <laughs> to see a movie draw back from that so much and more is inferred and it's a little weird. Um, why don't you chime in here, Sean? Well, I mean, first of all, this movie is a great story. It's a great finale. It's just, uh, it's a finale you've seen before. I mean, it's an army of machines led by evil Queen Favmorta descends upon Hogwarts in the heart of Zion and is met by by an alliance of Ewoks and men led by Aragorn and Princess Leia, and they're all just trying to buy time so that Frodo can finish fighting Agent Smith and throw the ring into the fires of Mordor. <laughs> um, it's your it's your standard end to a hero's journey. 
right down to you know Harry conquering death and having his encounter with Dumbledore, who kind of sets everything straight, and then has his little uh, <laughs> Trinity at the end of the Matrix moment, <laughs> where oh God, gay Dumbledore tells the teenage tells the teenage boy that basically that he loves him and okay never mind and then there was much fanfic um <laughs> but <laughs> like I like I said it's it's a good story it's a good story you kind of know how it's going to end especially if you've read the book ahead of time um man I really walked right into that whole Trinity and me hosting with Harry and Dumbledore <laughs> I almost feel like that should be a robot chicken short now. Hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, apologize, I apologize, everybody. I swear I love this franchise, but just, I'm sorry. Even if you love something, you have to giggle at it every now every now and then. Take that from a longtime Highlander fan. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, no, I I too loved seeing Neville rise to the rise to the occasion and seize and seize his moment. Uh, he is one of my favorite characters throughout the entire book. Uh, Alexis, remind me, I seem to remember that herbology. I think was kind of the one subject that he did best in. Yeah, in fact, uh, they briefly mention this in the books uh, during the epilogue, but he actually goes on to become professor of herbology uh, in the epilogue. That they mention something like, "Say hi mm-hmm. to you know, say hi to Neville for us," and like, we can't say hi to Professor Longbottom like that. So. Yeah, I was I was gonna say I kind of like how, and this is just a brief little aside. I like how even the most heroic characters in this book. You know they're, they're they're not they're not all powerful. They they all have something in which they're particularly especially weak, um, and it it humanizes them. You know, um, Neville is historically god awful at potions, um, but you know he excels in herbology. Um, Harry is an absolute prodigy in defense of the dark arts. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I think it was. Didn't he also do particularly badly in potions? Um, he did okay in potions yeah. until Half Blood Prince, when he gets the uh, the advanced potion making book that helped him. But the fact is that he doesn't do his great impotion the same reason Neville doesn't do is because Professor Snape is taking all of his anguish out on them. And I think it's something that a lot of people don't realize why Professor Snape is treating Neville so badly. Yeah, he's always Even in the third book, Neville mentions that his worst fear is Professor Snape. That's why he comes looking like him when he sees the bogger. Snape is cruel right. to Neville because... Had Voldemort chosen Neville's family, Lily would still be alive. He looks right, at right. Neville and goes, he basically looks at Neville and goes, you should not be sitting here. Voldemort made the wrong choice. I am mad at you about this. And he takes a lot of his anger and frustration out on the boys because of that. 
Now, right. I think he's well, right. It is still a bullying tactic, but I thought that was a, nice, a really well, subtle touch. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this, the whole thing with uh, James and Lily and Snape, because that's a bit of a history that I feel like really got short shrift throughout a lot of the movies. And I, I feel it was, I get why it was necessary, but it was to the detriment of, of kind of adding something to Snape in places that I feel they could have, and also fleshing out uh, kind of hairy genes a little bit. And again, it also adds another element of something that's universe, well, I won't say universally, but we'll say widely relatable in terms of the fact that in its own way, love really wins out for Snape in terms of how I, I'm sure had he, had he been able to put it so bluntly, he would have probably said point blank to both of them. Let's get something, something clear right now, friendo. James, I detest you. You suck. I remember everything you did you did to me. I've never forgotten it. I'm never going to going to forget it. I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for her. Um, you know, I I obviously won't go into details, but I've I've kind of been kind of been in similar situations, and that's the, that's a very conflicted, surreal feeling when that happens. As far as the rest of the characters, it's it's a movie where it's it's fun to get to see, uh, kind of expectedly, of course. But the misfits really step up in some spectacular ways, and 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 carry the day. But again, they they don't do it in such a way where it's it just they they inexplicably triumph over triumph over evil and somehow come away just utterly unscathed. No. People take a goddamn beating in this movie on both sides. And again, terrible, terrible cost. Uh, hell, in this movie we have... Okay, let's just help me out. Was it Crab or Goyle that got cleansed with fucking fire? Actually, they... Uh did it backwards in the book. I believe in the, uh, I hate to say it, I keep screwing up which one is which, but the one of the actors who played either Crab or Goyle before making this movie was actually arrested, I believe, for drug charges. Oh, oh well, I, 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 I think I could swear that he was, uh, no, I believe he was a very naughty boy during the London riots. Oh, I couldn't remember. It was one of those things. That's why during the scene in the room of requirement when they're getting the diadem, there, there's this one black kid from Slytherin who is like, who the hell is this? Because the other actress <laughs> was obviously not available. Oh, God. I didn't put two and two together and realize that was what fucking Yeah, I think it's Crab oh, yeah. who dies in the book, and it's Goyle who dies in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, last... <laughs> yeah um, I wonder what the spell is for kill him with fucking fire. <laughs> um, I, yeah, young adult movie. 
complete, complete with complete with basically creation. Um, it's a very but, comical bit. I don't know. J.K. Rowling, I'm sure they don't help here. Go ahead, Sean. I have no idea. The goddamn audio issues are are still throwing my rhythm off. You you were saying something about a comical bit, and then something about J.K. Rowling, and then I lost. Okay. Comical to watch him futz with his wand and have fire shooting at him. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, Fine, whatever he says. Immediately, my brain went to went to Hans Solo, very famous New Hope, where he goes running after a group of stormtroopers. Sees, <laughs> um, very simple. You know, I the rings. You did a whole bit a few minutes ago where you know you took you know a nut. And if I genres and you know made of it, uh, and I'm just wondering, Rowling knew she was doing that. If she knew that there was all these allusions to famous fantasy, if it was just purely act, and maybe just some of the rhythm, the notes, uh, well, I, be, I, I, they I, just don't. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I got. I sort of got the got the gist of that query because now, in addition to the fucking echo and the delay and and us stalling for time for the first twenty minutes of the show, we can now add the fact that I cut that I caught every sick fucking word of that. God damn it, blog talk. Yeah, sorry, Mark, but we can barely hear what you're saying. Fucking hell, this shit show audio. Oh, good. Class. It's just like that. Uh, okay, fine. I'll just say what's on say um, what's on my mind here. I, I I don't know if it's something that she consciously came up with because the fact is, Harry Potter. And I'm not saying this as a bad thing. I'm not saying it as a criticism. I'm just saying it as a thing. It has so many of the earmarks of Joseph Campbell's hero with a thousand faces. It's a story and an arc and a progression that. You, that, that to escape it, you have to try so exhaustively hard that it shows when your narrative kind of just gradually devolves into contrivance because you're exerting too much effort to kind of resist the flow. It's, it sort of just isn't really just necessarily the flow, necessarily the flow of fictional characters but it's a kind of maturation that you see reflected in real life all the time, things that you could establish as, as metaphors to every hero's journey of every kind. Uh, you could probably just uh, throw, just like list the 100 greatest professional athletes, for example, dart in your hand, and fling it at that list. 
and you would probably come up with somebody on there that if you wanted to really reach and be theatrical, you could compare it to the standard circular hero's journey. Uh, you could do the same thing with any number of great professional wrestlers of all time. If you were to chart practically the the source of their entire of their entire career, you know, almost almost anybody's kind of run that full gamut from probably fucking Ric Flair uh, to John Cena. It's not not to be kind of woo woo or overly spiritual or any or anything, but it's just part of the flow of life. So it makes sense that when you're kind of pulling these characters from the bottom of your heart and you have that connection to them, that in your head at any given time. It's like you've got this whole life of established memories with them and their friends and family and lovers and enemies and and bystanders. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense that you're just kind of going to go where the narrative takes them and where it's going to take some people, depending on their position in the story, is going to look really damn familiar, especially when you consider where you take, where they've been already. Uh, And that's where our core heroes of the story end up. I mean, I, I think it's a matter of it may be the same road leading to the same place, but over time, and as seasons change, it takes on a different look and a different feel. And it still manages to become a different journey with every walk that you take down it, whether it's in you know, a, a galaxy far, far away or Middle Earth or where the barrier between the wizarding world and the muggle world meets and both are in danger. It doesn't make it, it doesn't make it any less engaging or spectacular or heartrending when you experience, when you experience it because it's like sitting down to a favorite, to a favorite meal that's been cooked diff, that's been cooked different ways. I mean, you might, it might taste a little bit different, but it's you know it, it's still the same the same thing that you love, and it's still the same thing that's endeared itself itself to you. And even though it might be a little bit different, there's still plenty about it that just can't help but warm your heart. So, well said, very well said. Oh, thank you. You know, there is one thing we haven't really talked about that I do think needs to be addressed before we wrap things up. And that is we really haven't talked about what in many many people's opinion is one of the most emotional scenes in fictional history, the reveal of Snape's character. When we mm-hmm. dive into the pensive and we see just how he's been affected all this time. And I mentioned this on my Facebook page last night. 
if you don't cry when you see Snape release the dough Patronus, you have no soul. Mm-hmm. I sobbed like a baby last night. I It's been forever since I've seen that scene. And maybe it means more now that Alan Rickman has sadly passed away. And now that we have seen just how much the image of a doe and the one word always has just cemented itself into the Harry Potter world, into the fandom, that that is so just such an icon, you know, not just the lightning bolt scar, not just the broom, not just Hedwig, the doe and the word always. For many people, that's the most iconic moment of the entire series. And I really think that speaks volumes of just how impactful that reveal was. Speaking of animals, why do they have to kill Hedwig? Not cool. She got a better death in the movie. In the book, she's just hit by a stray spell. In the movie, she tries to defend Harry and gives her life. I, I think it's just mostly because when you realize that what, what were they going to do with Hedwig uh, during this? You know, obviously Harry couldn't have a snowy owl with him. She, they mentioned in the fifth books that the owls are being, tra- being uh, trafficked. And watched, and she's a snowy white owl. She grabs a lot of attention. She's not, that's not a common owl to have. You know, I, I know. agree that her death scene was horrible, and it's, you, no one likes killing off the cute animal sidekick. Nobody likes doing that. I know, but, still. Don't kill the owl, you dickwad. All the deaths in this movie and in the book series, and the owl is what you call someone a dickwad over. Well, yeah. Edward was awesome. Yeah, so that was my two cents. I wanted to bring up the pensive scene with Snape. I like Sean, did you see the message I sent you on Messenger? Um, did, uh, did you send it just now? He, Yeah, I saw it. He said, as soon as we're... I, what did I see? As soon as we're done talking, you'll hit the outro? No. <laughs> Look, with my what? microphone problems, such as they are, until I get this figured out, I don't want to keep interrupting the show with bad audio. So I was saying, you guys discuss the movie as much as you want, but when you're finished, let me know, and I'll, I'll take us out. Okay, well, I don't know. Alexis, do you have anything else you want to add? One thing I do want to point out is that one, something I've come to realize J.K. Rowling is truly magnificent for her writing is the foreshadowing and the early planting of seeds and how they really grow into something. My favorite example mm-hmm. being in Deathly Hallows Part 1 that we get to see the Deluminator again. This was seen just briefly in the first book and in the first movie when Dumbledore arrives on Private Drive and he uses it to darken the street and it has not been seen again. But the fact that they, inclu- they brought it back, I really like that. And again, so many little tidbits here and there start to add up. 
you realize she really planned this all out so spectacularly, and it's really brilliant, which unfortunately is more than I can say for David Yates, because I feel that foreshadowing and planting things early is not his strong point. There are so many things that he left out for time in the previous movies, which really, really did screw them up. I was joking with a friend of mine earlier today because I was when I was watching the Gringotts scene, um, and they get there, and all of a sudden Harry can hear or sense the Horcruxes, if you will. Obviously, it's the, there, there's a problem because in Half Blood Prince we have the scene in the book where he actually sees the the Hufflepuff cup. Uh, Dumbledore says that he's pretty sure that that is one of the Horcruxes because he's pretty sure that um, Voldemort would have wanted something, like he had something from Slytherin, he could get something from Hufflepuff, and he wants something from Ravenclaw. He, he wants his Horcruxes to be symbolic of the founders of Hogwarts, the first place that he really felt at home, the place that he wanted to return to. Mm-hmm. I just had this image in my head when they were filming, getting ready to film the Gringotts scene, and David Yates and the producers just realized, oh, crap, we have absolutely no build-up to how he would know which one is the uh, Horcrux. And they just kind of looked around like, uh, quick, somebody make something up. The Force. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's like, wow, Deus Ex Machina saves the day, bravo. Yeah, again, there's I, I, I do enjoy the movies, but I honestly feel that David Yates needs to work a little bit better on his foreshadowing. It, it could be it could be worse if this shit would have been going down in the Buffy were in the Buffyverse. Harry would have just gone on the internet. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I I'm making a prediction right now, guys. I know that we still have a handful of Fantastic Beasts and where to find the movies coming out. Side note: Saw Fantastic Beasts. Great movie, really enjoyed it, highly recommend it. I am predicting that within, I'd say, 15 years, maybe 20 is absolute most of them, that's been probably about 15 years, we are going to get a full Harry Potter reboot. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I, but I don't think they're going to do the movies. I think we're going to do like a Netflix or a Hulu or an Amazon series. One you know what? I could live book. with that. I think we're gonna. I think Harry Potter is gonna get rebooted and get the Game of Thrones treatment. You know what? I would be a okay with that because I'm glad you mentioned Game of Thrones because Game of Thrones and Harry Potter, I think, are two of the very few um, just uh, just general just general series the, the, the overall worlds. Uh, of any genre of literature that have been created in the past, oh, I'll say 25 years, that could really be called bona fide, timeless classics. Just works that I really, I really believe are going to stand up every bit as well 40, 50 years from now as they do today. Um, There there have been a lot of popular franchises and kind of beach-reading bestsellers that have come and gone in that span of time. 
Uh, obviously, there's there's Twilight, there's the Hunger Games, there's the Millennium Trilogy, there's um, uh, Divergent. Yeah, there's Divergent. There's uh, Dan Brown's Robert Langdon novels. All of those, uh, and 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 they're all. Oh, okay, I'm not going to throw Fifty Shades and Twilight in there. Obviously, um, they they all have their they all have their merits. Um, Fifty Shades being this is how you write this is how you don't write good. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I think those are the main two that I can think of. That in terms of just everything you could describe, in terms of visuals, world building, care, emotional in emotional investment, action, story. Those are the ones that I have a feeling when uh, when I when I turn well <laughs> yeah, you're gonna start humming the damn Beatles song, I know, but when I when I'm sixty four Hey, if I didn't do it nobody else would. That's why I warned you it was coming. Um, <laughs> and you know when 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 I'm crazy old Uncle Sean, uh, that's the last resort for my friends and my sister to leave to leave their kids with when they got to go go on vacation for a while or something. Um, yeah. And we Jeremy, John, Ray, you've all been warned. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, those are the books that if they're that if if they're big readers and they get and they get bored, I can pull those out and tell them that these were some of the most popular books in the world when I when I was their age, and I think they'd really enjoy them. And you know what? I'm willing to bet that nothing about these uh, these stories. These these characters, all these all these emotions and memories that we have tied to them, are going to feel old. You know, not not the way it is with the way it is with some stories. When you know, Alexis, you or I read them in high read them in high school, and there was just something about them that you know that just everything was of another time, not just the setting. But the language is every single little thing about them, uh, and, and made them a little bit harder to relate to. But on the other hand, Westeros and the Wizarding World, uh, those are two creations that I that I get the feeling are going to go down alongside Narnia, uh, alongside alongside Middle Earth. Um, just among those instantly recognizable classic places and examples of really not just great books, but but true classic literature. And it's it's one it's wonderful. I I feel so privileged that I grew up during a time when I got to see them committed to film. Well, and in Game of Thrones case, television, in a manner that just couldn't have done them more justice 
than they than they did to the point where there are so few things that you would ever do differently um that so few things that you didn't see that you could really ask for that makes any of these movies really feel like a disappointment um we got absolute career defining performances not just from the likes of uh, child actors who grew who grew into greatness like Tom Felton and Daniel Radcliffe and Rupert Grint and Emma Watson but also performances for which an entire generation the, the first time uh anybody mentions Alan Rickman I can I can guarantee you there's going to be three movies they're going to think of they're going to think of first out of everything that wonderful man did during his life and it's going to be Die Hard, Dogma and Harry Potter. I was going to say Galaxy Quest instead of uh Dogma honestly. Uh, you, you know what uh Robert Winfrey would probably cast an unforgivable curse on me if I didn't throw that one out there. So yes, I would certainly by grab Thar's hammer throw Galaxy Quest in there too. Um and, and he's and he's not and he's not the only one. You know, I mean, Michael Gambon is such a fucking accomplished actor with, with, such, a spe- with such a spectacular resume. Yeah, Maggie Smith. Um, she's she's going to be remembered for Downton Abbey and Minerva McGonagall. Um, you could go down the list with so the list with so many more. Um, well, I, I, how about I one? Of, say, how about one of the great last appearances of Warwick Davis? Yeah, yeah, cool. that's... Uh, you know, I'd like to point out, we sadly also lost this year. Yeah, that, that that's true. I, I completely forgot that he passed away this this year, too. Uh, Warwick Davis. Uh, for, first two things I'm going to remember him for... First three things I'm going to remember him for are Willow, Leprechaun, Harry Potter. It was... It was a jumping off point for some, and it was a spectacular late career addition to their legacy for others. And it's just obvious in every scene how Daniel and Emma in particular uh, grew and learned so much and became well-rounded performers from sitting under the learning tree with these people. In fact, um, if you ever really want to hear Daniel Radcliffe just being a really cool regular guy, can't recommend highly enough. Go watch uh, his episode of uh, WTF with Mark Maron. Well, not watch; it's a podcast. Listen, uh, go listen uh, to his interview because it also includes Daniel talking about uh, how he really fell nasty into a drinking problem. Uh, during the during his latter years uh, making Harry Potter, I believe it was I could sorry I believe it was Gary Oldman that he said really kind of talked him down and snapped him out of it and got him to start taking himself seriously in no small part because Gary recognized just just what a spectacular career he could have ahead of him and, and how there's he, another. He won- 
actor, there's another actor that we can add who will have Harry Potter as one of his iconic moments of all time. Uh, iconic is stretching it because by this point, Gary has done so goddamn much already that he, he's going to be the ones for whom, uh, oh, I was serious black is going to be kind of a footnote. <laughs> Probably. I I disagree. I disagree because Sirius Black is still to this day one of the favorite characters in the series, and Oldman oh. played him so well, especially in the third movie. I really loved how he was seen as still kind of unhinged when they corner him in the Shrieking Shack. That he 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 didn't get out of Azkaban completely with all of his marbles intact at that moment. He was still oh. a little driven by madness. Yeah, that's true, but but at the same time, uh, prior to this, we have to remember, he was Dracula, Mason Verger, Sid Vicious, um, uh, fuck, I'm not, I know I'm forgetting something. I'm for, it, it's Gary Oldman, his entire resume is so extensive, it's... It's goddamn impossible to keep all of them straight. This was uh, this was pre Jim Gordon, obviously. Um, and you know, as, as a side note, as we pointed out before, uh, the Doctor came along and did the world a favor by trying to get to rid the world of Edward Cullen. <laughs> you tried, David Tennant. You tried. <laughs> um, yeah, it was. You know, was, Robert Pattinson is not a terrible actor. He has done other things that were quite good, and this could be seen as a great stepping off point for him. This was the first movie that he really got his name out there for. Well, 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 yeah, exactly. And before David Tennant was, um, before he was Casanova, before he was the Doctor, before, before he uh, starred in starred in Broadchurch. Uh, this was kind of where he was unleashed upon an unsuspecting world. Um, so uh, that's a lot of history to cram it to cram into eight movies, and you know, obviously, I don't know if I'm going to be like Mark and have two little crumb snatchers of my own. Uh, that's up. In, that's up in the air, Alexis. You know, you're married. You never know. You and Andre may decide, may one day decide that um, you want to have a couple little tree climbers. That's like I've got um, a couple of crumb snatchers who are currently biting each other's ears right now. <laughs> yeah, they would. Well, you keep keep in mind, I lived with one of those for a number of years. He literally is a crumb snatcher. Yeah, so it's the other. I have two dogs, ladies and gentlemen, a cocker spaniel and a Welsh corgi, who yeah are currently running around the house like somebody just gave them crack. It, it isn't. It isn't. It isn't the crumbs you have to worry about with Toby. It's the fries you have to worry about him snatching. The fries and the salmon. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. You leave salmon within about ten yards of him, and. You know, you all of a sudden realize that you have a little speedster on your hands. Whereas you give any kind of human food to Eddie, and he will spend the next 15 minutes jumping up and biting your fingers because he assumes that if there was food there once, there must be food there again. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I'm not sure really what else we can say about these books, about about these eight movies, 
um, except if you haven't read them, if you haven't seen them, if you're not put off by the fact that we just spoiled the entire goddamn thing, go. You go watch, you go read. Now. Especially emphasis on the... Oh, there was one thing we completely forgot to talk about. The animated sequence. Animated sequence. In Deathly Hallows Part 1. Oh! The Tale of the Brothers. You know, I, again, this is a brief footnote, but I'd say that was an absolutely brilliant way of doing the exposition on the story. I love the animation style. It, it kind of, they kind of made it look like they were marionettes, CGI marionettes, if you will, and it looks so gorgeous. And I absolutely loved, loved that sequence. It actually, uh, in, it reminded me, it reminded me of the opening of Hellboy and the Golden Army. I could see that. But again, I thought that was just an – I really enjoyed that. Not to mention that really brings in further the whole idea that so much of the Harry Potter stories, what they're really about is death. But not just, you know, people dying, but the idea that death is not something to fear and it is not something to push against like Voldemort does. Voldemort's greatest fear is death. That's mm-hmm. why he ha- he made the Horcruxes. That's why he sought the Elder Wand. He was terrified of death. But the fact that Harry has the invisibility cloak, and yes, it is confirmed, that is one of the Deathly Hallows, that it, he has the original invisibility cloak. Mm-hmm. The idea is that death is not something to push back. Because the, remember, the brother in the story who had the invisibility cloak, in the later years, he greeted death as a friend. The idea is yeah. that... Death is an inevitable part of life, and we shouldn't fight it. I'm not saying, you know, go kill yourself, all of you, but, you know, what, what, did, Harry, what did Dumbledore say? Don't pity the dead. Pity the short lives of the living or mm-hmm. something like that. But I really think that was really important, an important part that wasn't overly hyped and wasn't really crammed down our throats, but a subtle touch by J.K. Rowling, the idea that, yes, death will happen. Death is inevitable, but death is not our enemy. Well, with that being said, for the second to last time ever is on Long Road to Ruin. Alexis, real quick, I'm going to throw it to you for the first set of plugs. <laughs> wow, I come off of death is not our enemy to our plugs. <laughs> <laughs> We're running out of time. Fine, let me get off the soapbox. Um... Yes, as I mentioned before in our previous podcast, I run Honeysuckle Rose Creations, the intersection of geek and chic, currently selling out of Etsy, handmade at Amazon, and Store Envy. We have tons, and I mean tons, of new merchandise that we have put out for the holiday season. Not just the new Harry Potter merchandise. We've mentioned this before. We have our customizable Patronus charm bracelet. We have our Houses of Hogwarts and Houses of Illable Mornay. Uh, Barrett, I'm probably massacring the name of that school. We have just added our brand, our brand new superhero line. We have Avengers. We have Justice League. We have Defenders. We have the Lantern Corps. We have all your one-stop shopping needs for the holiday season if you're looking for the perfect stocking stuffer for your fellow geek. Well said. Be sure to go and like us on Facebook. And by us, I mean both Honeysuckle Rose Creations and also the Radulich and Broadcasting Network. As for me, I really don't have just a whole lot in the way of plugs, although 
this coming Sunday, if you like you some professional wrestling and you can't happen to make your way over to WWE Network to watch WWE TLC be main evented by WWE Champion AJ Styles defending against Dean Ambrose in a ladder match, well, then you are in luck because you can just head right over to FPGnews.com where for the second pay-per-view in a row... And that's right, not pay-per-views more than the second network special. Network special spectacular hullabalooza in a row. I will be providing live segment-by-segment coverage all evening long, all of the results, provided that WWE Network doesn't make a, doesn't make a Trumpy Dumpy in the bed again. Um, you so, really just love bringing out that old MST3K reference, don't you? It's my favorite MST3K episode. Oh, Trumpy, you do stupid things. <laughs> oh, look, new potatoes. <laughs> uh, MST3K, pod people. You can find it on YouTube. Go, watch, laugh yourself into a mirth coma. Um that's me. Uh, as we pointed out before, December 13th, join us for the Viking funeral for Long Road to Ruin. Myself and the mandated reporter, frankly, he mortifies us all, Mark Rodlich, will be reviewing the three flavors of Cornetto trilogy. That is Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and... Fittingly, the very last movie we will be talking about to close out four years of Long Road to Ruin proper will be The End of the World. Um, a good time shall be had by all. I'm sure that Blog Talk Radio will bend us over the table and stick a cucumber up there until it snaps off again. <laughs> because God knows this was a clusterfuck on top of an orgy of clusterfucks tonight. But still... We had a great time. It has been a spectacular month talking about a wonderful, timeless eight-movie set. I would like to thank my long, 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 long-time friend Alexis Haina for stopping for stopping by to chat about her, fa- her favorite franchise in the world with us. I would like to thank Mark Radlich, as always, for being the world's single greatest broadcast partner. I would like to thank all of you for listening live and downloading. Without you, there would have been no four years of us, for better or for worse, till Blog Talk Radio fucks us, shall we part. So, for Alexis Haina, Toby, and Eddie, for the mandated reporter, the No Pants Man, the no pants man of the Florida clan, Mark Rodelich. I'm Sean Comer. You're not. Thank you for listening. $20 will still buy many peanuts. Never dull your colors for someone else's canvas. And Mark, take us out with our very special outro. Good night, everybody. La 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 Ha 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 ha!
Thanks for watching. We'd like to give a very special thanks to our good friend Rosanna Pantino for lending us her...